like I said, we're, we're in Romans. Many of you know that. If you've been with us for a while, we are getting to the end of it. This book does have an ending. I know some of you guys were like, really? Are you sure? It does, and we are getting to the end of it. Um, and so this week we'll be in chapter 14 and chapter 15. We're going to begin chapter 15, and we started last week looking at 14, and it deals with this issue that is such an important issue, and it has to do with unity in the church. And what do we do when, can you imagine, church people disagreeing on stuff? Is that, does that happen? I don't know. I've been in ministry 30 years. I've never, no, yeah, of course. I see it all the time. It's crazy. So, so the Bible gives us wisdom and direct um, counsel on this. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into this. God, we love you, and I would pray that you would open up your word to us in a real way. Help us. I, what, what I mean by that is, God, I pray that, that um, we would change our thinking based on your truth and not try to match what you're trying to tell us this morning with what we already think or our, our preconceived ideas or notions. God, move us if we need to move. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, that today would be the day that they know him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So harmony and unity in the church. What I think is interesting about this is Paul writes this book, and Paul is a guy, a character, he writes a bunch of the New Testament, and he goes off on all these journeys to start a bunch of these churches. If you're familiar with some of the books in the New Testament, Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, those are all cities that Paul starts churches in. And this book of Romans, he's laying out the Christian message in maybe the most complete way of, of any other book that we have. And he, do, he has no in, interaction with the church in Rome. Um, and, and what's interesting about that is these other books, Paul knows the people. He's been there. He helped start the church. Or we have some instances where Paul receives letters from some of these churches, and they're asking him very specific questions. Like, hey, Paul, man, we got this thing going. We're following Jesus, and this happened. This deal happened with leadership, or we got some people in our church trying to teach this. Like, what do we do? And Paul responds specifically to the issues that arise, and it's, very, it's been helpful. God knew it would be helpful for, for the church um, for 2,000 years plus until Jesus comes back. But what we have here is Paul going, hey, I know that this is going to happen in churches. Here is going to be something every church family deals with. And so here's God's wisdom on this issue. And that's why I think it's even, even more interesting that we don't have to go, well, this is very specific to that church then. Nope, this is specific to Lifestone Church. And that every church family gathering will struggle with unity and, and getting past our differences and what chapter 14 specifically calls disputable matters. And so as we uh, look at these disputable matters, and that's kind of the issue, like what do we do? Last week we talked about how we can't even all agree, I mean all of us, let's just take 10 of us and let's go try to go out to eat. You've got a good 10 minutes of trying to figure out where that is, right? Because no one's going to agree. You're going to have like 12 different suggestions for your 10 people, right? And so that's a minor issue, but there's some other issues where there is no verse on it. 
the Bible is silent on the issue or there's a lack of clarity. What do we do in instances where we're trying to follow Jesus and we've got a certain conviction maybe based on Scripture and so we choose a different path, a certain path. Uh, so we'll get into more specific things. What we deal with in, in uh, chapter 14 is they're fighting over a group that's like, they want the all-you-can-eat meat buffet. They go Friday night. I went to the pie, and they're, they're ordering the, wait, what's their big meat one? The meat extrav- extravaganza or something? I don't know. Mountain of Meat, that's it. That's, I thought, man, it's some name that I thought was cool. The Mountain of Meat Pizza. They're ordering the Mountain of Meat Pizza. And then there's other people who are very convicted that they're doing, they're not eating meat. And the issue specifically is meat offered to idols. But they go so far as to say, we're just not going to eat any meat. Some of it has to do with their Jewish heritage. But they're saying, man, this meat was sacrificed to false gods, false idols. Why would we even want to come close to it? And then there's another camp that are both Jesus followers, and they're going, because it's meat, because it's good. And we know that the, 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 that has nothing to do with where we stand with God, and that's some fake God that they're worshiping. Why not take advantage of this beautiful thing called meat that God provided for us? Um, and you have two camps that are very strong in their conviction of what they should do, and they both have, have a circle of friends probably that, that have arguments, and they all think alike. And they're like, I just can't believe these people wouldn't eat meat. And the people on the other side, I don't know what's beeping at us, someone's car. The people on the other side are saying, I cannot believe they would even come close to something that was used to worship a false god. And you, I, I mean, I think you could kind of sit in the circle of either friend and go, you make some good points. You make some very valid points. And, and that's, but there's not, uh, this would be a disputable matter. This isn't the core issues. Today, here's our big three. Ready? Theology. Within church, you're, you're going to have people. And when I talk about theology, this isn't the core foundational truths of the Christian faith. Like, how do you define Christianity? Well, it's based on these core truths of who we believe God is, that that, that, that Scripture clearly reveals him to be. What we believe is Scripture, what we believe God, how he's revealed himself, who Jesus is, how you're saved, like these core foundations of like, that define the Christian faith, but other theology of, of the, that can be a little bit, you know, more practical on, on uh, things of how we live out our faith and, and, and things. And I hesitate to mention anything because I will offend some person and there's going to be these different camps. Um, so theology, lifestyle, and that goes more specifically into, well, you should or shouldn't do this or wear this or get this uh, permanently put on your body or or, or go, you know, this entertainment choice or, or whatever. And then the big one, politics. Yeah, politics. And, and there are people in the Christian faith who love Jesus and have been totally changed by him. And there's people who use this phrase. I talked to someone after the last service that said, I don't know how many times I've heard this phrase. How in the world could anyone who followed Jesus believe fill in the blank or, you know, be a part of this 
political group or ideology or whatever. And, and those are the things that, that, that can divide us. Now, I'm looking through Scripture, and it says nothing about, you know, Republican or Democrat or, or independent, you know. But what we do is we take verses, and we'll take them out, and we'll try to, you know. And I, I personally, I think we should be involved in politics. And we, that's a gift that we have in our culture, and we should have an influence as believers. And there's some certain moral issues that I personally am very convicted about when it comes to, to politics and what God's word says. But often we take things and we, um, we, we use our own opinions and we'll try to use scripture, but often we use it out of context. Here's one I hear a lot to, to make an excuse to not do all sorts of things from what we consume to what we eat to what we drink to what we smoke to what we uh, put on our body, that our body is a temple. And we'll throw out that verse to say you shouldn't do, you know, all these things. And it's scripture. The Bible says our body's a temple. Shouldn't be doing one of those things I mentioned. And that verse, you know what it's referring to? Sleeping with prostitutes. That's, go on and read the rest of that verse. That's what it has to do with. And it talks about how it is a spiritual thing, a marriage. And when a husband and wife come together, they are one in this spiritual way. And they're, they're, someone shouldn't go off and, and, and do something. That's specifically, but we'll use that verse out of context to, to, use, you know, to apply it to all sorts of things. So, anyways, we don't want to do that, that either. Let's jump into verse 14. Let's look at that one more time. Accept other believers who's, who are weak in faith. And don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. Here's an interesting thing. As you read chapter 14 and 15, you'll discover that the people Paul is talking about who are weak in faith are the ones who have more rules and don't live in as much freedom. Does that surprise any of you? That really surprised me. Because growing up in churches and, and some, you know, being around some believers who had a lot of extra rules to the Christian faith, I thought, well, man, their extra rules make them more spiritual, right? Because they don't do this, and they don't do that, and they, and Paul actually calls people who are in that category, actually, that they're, that, that that's a, and, and I'm not trying to condemn them, because Paul will go on to say, don't condemn them, be loving towards them, but it's the opposite of often what we think. And don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has accepted them. And Paul has identified exactly what we do. If we have a lot of extra rules and we are kind of self-righteous in those rules and we think that God loves me and is smiling, has a bigger smile towards me than you because there's these things that I don't do, what do we do towards those believers, we're talking about believers, who, who do those things that you think you shouldn't do those things? We condemn them. We think they're evil. We will even, as Christians, categorize like a whole church. And go, well, that church, they allow drinking. They're evil. (laughs) They don't love Jesus like we do. I think Jesus wouldn't have a problem hanging out with that group. 
he might make him more wine as a miracle or something like he did in the past. So um, it says we don't condemn and go there evil, but then the opposite is true. The people who are like, well, you know what? We're following the clear understanding of Scripture. It clearly says don't be drunk, but there's so many examples of alcohol being consumed that we believe that, okay, it can be used in moderation, but don't get drunk. And they'll, what will they do? Their tendency will be to look down at those who have more of a sensitive conscience and are saying, well, hey, we're just completely abstaining. And what Paul is saying, there shouldn't be one or the other. There's not a right answer when it comes to this. There is put it aside and love each other and not, don't make that a big issue. And have more unity and love for Jesus and in Jesus than you do these disputable matters. I hope that makes sense, right? It does. Yay. You guys are excited. Romans 14, 19. Says, so, so then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. And I think often we run around and try to correct everybody's non-essential beliefs and understandings. And it says directly, here's a command given to us as believers. Don't focus on that. Actually, okay, there's that group or this, this family or whatever, and, and it's not something that's black and white in Scripture. Um, I'm not going to focus on trying to change them. I'm going to focus on trying to just have unity and actually build them up. Romans 15.1, as we jump in, into this new chapter, says, We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. And that's the whole idea is that we're to be like Christ who gave everything and was very selfless. And we're called to do the same among our relationships with other believers. In the first service, I talked about how in Life Group this week, we are, we're going to uh, celebrate communion. And, you know, if there's some group who says, hey, you know, we just want to do, do it how Jesus did it, did it and how it was done in the early church, like, we're just going to use wine to do communion. I'd be like, well... Let me know what time, because I want to come over. Now, um, I would say as a pastor, that's, that's totally fine, if your whole group is fine with that. But as a small group doing communion this week, if you have someone who objects to that, out of sensitivity, abstain from that. Just don't do that. Be nice enough. No, say, well, we have the freedom, and we're going to argue because we're not getting, you know. That's what Paul is saying here. That we should love each other. We should put people um, above ourselves and not wave our, our freedom of what we feel like we can do in people's face. Number one, why is it so hard to disagree agreeably? And I know that's a question. I usually try to make points. But if you have any room to write in there, why is it so hard to disagree agreeably? Let's understand that it all started in the garden. But we are, we are um, living out consequences of that. But just remember what God is doing. When he first created Adam and Eve in a garden, there was perfect relationships. Perfect relationship between, of course, uh, the, the people that God created and himself. As the, we get pictures of them just walking in the garden side by side. And also perfect relationship between husband and wife. Between people. We see no example of like, well, then one day Adam and Eve had this little marital spat. Nope. That comes into play when sin enters. And sin enters in, they have one thing, one rule that they're supposed to follow. 
to not eat of this certain tree. And they come along and they're tempted to do so and they fall into that temptation. And what happens? Immediately, before buses are even invented, people start getting thrown under them. Adam is blaming Eve, and Eve is blaming Adam, and blaming the serpent, and then blaming God. Well, you gave me this woman. And relationships start just falling apart because of sin. And then the next story that we get of kind of an interaction that, that, and I think God puts this in Scripture to make this point, the next story we get is of the sons, the two brothers, one brother, kills another brother over what? How to worship God. That's how broken and messed up sin can affect relationships. So God, his desire and his goal, of course, his plan is to restore the perfect thing that he created. And he does that ultimately in Jesus. And we who have Christ in us should understand how incredibly important it is for relationships among believers who have this new heart that God gives us, that we should have relationships that are unified and in harmony. Um, so it's basically self-centeredness begin, kicks in, uh, in in the very beginning, and then we, we inherit that sin nature, uh, and, and we have to realize that, that that is something God's trying to conquer. Galatians five nineteen through 21, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. And here's what I think is interesting. Like, okay, well, here's what it looks like just living in your own nature, in your own just here's my self-centeredness, my, my desires, what I think is best for me. And it gives a picture of what it looks like living naturally and, and kind of how bad it can get. And, and you guys, if you're like, okay, I, I've seen those lists. If you if you've know some, have some Bible background or church background. And so here's the list in Galatians 5. Uh, your sinful nature, when you follow the desires of it, it results in sexual immorality. Yeah, yeah. Impurity. Yep, yep. Lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery. Yeah, all these evil things. But then they progressively kind of keep continue to scrape the bottom of the barrel of what happens when we when we uh, follow our sinful nature Idol- uh, I'm sorry hostility quarreling jealousy outbursts of outbursts of anger selfish ambitions dissension division envy so it goes on to to list things that I think not we, we sometimes wouldn't say, okay, what are the worst of the worst sins that when we're totally rebelling against God and we're like, yeah, sexual impurity and, and, you know, and we go through those kind of things in the beginning and we don't go, we're, we have, you know, hostility towards others. We have dissension within our relationships. Like those aren't ones that we automatically go to, but the half of the list has to do with broken relationships. Um, Ephesians 4.3, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. And the, the picture that we get there is that this isn't easy, that it is very easy to slip back into our sinful nature instead of understanding who we truly are in Christ and that the spirit of God lives in us and that we can choose to have 
him lead and guide our lives. And when he does, that looks like unity and peace and patience and love and kindness and, and selflessness, not selfishness. And, um, and so in Ephesians 4.3, though, it says, man, this is hard. If you've been trying to do this a while, like this is hard work. Like there's such a temptation to slip into how we used to think or how we, we used to be instead of living in the, the nature that we truly have in Christ. Um, but that's what we're supposed to do in Romans 12. The last back of this chap- or chapter, this book that we're going through in Romans, it, it, the whole, the whole uh, portion starts in Romans 12. And it says, man, we've got to renew the way we think and understand who we really are in Christ and what Christ wants from us. So I hope, this is one of my biggest fears as a pastor, that we go through a passage like this, and especially because this is directed towards believers. So like, okay, you've been a believer, and you're like, yeah, I know, I know, yeah, yeah. That's, that's stuff I know. This isn't new. Because these are things that I feel like long-term believers struggle mightily with. Like guys like Ben. That's me. I'm Ben, by the way. I read this, and I am very convicted. And so I, I hope that that just makes you, oh, I need to constantly renew my mind. I need to remember that, that uh, Ephesians says I need to make every effort, that it is going to be an effort to, to continually um, be in this state of thinking. Number two, what's worth fighting and dividing over? And we've talked about this a little bit last week. I just want this to be crystal clear. As we say, hey, let's just love each other and have unity. There are definitely things to fight over. Jesus stood his ground on certain issues, which ultimately led him to being crucified. Paul makes it very clear, and he stands his ground on issues, and he's, uh, he's, he, they try to kill him many times. Um, I think they did succeed at one time. I think he was actually like, brought back to life after he got stoned. Um, the, you know, the bad kind of stoning. And um, I know I say that too much, so. But anyways, uh, now I lost my place. What, what's, what, two things, salvation and sin. Salvation is absolutely worth fighting for. How someone say, I mean, because that has to do with the good news, the gospel. That's what good news means. What is the gospel? What saves and God's word is crystal clear. This is a black and white issue of what saves. Now, you could get nuanced into some of that even. And, and that might be something that we, we still try to have unity among people who have a little nuances about the faith in Christ alone saves. Like, I believe that totally, but okay, how exactly does that come? What is this faith and how is it expressed? And okay, we can have that conversation, but faith alone in Christ saves. God is this eternal God who created us and, and has eternally been eternal. That's what it means. <laughs> and he created time and space. I mean, some of the basic foundational truths, those are things that the Bible says we, we make a stance in those things. Last week we talked about Galatians 1.6. Paul starts out the letter to the Galatians saying, hey, you're giving in to this wrong teaching. And these people are not teaching the gospel that I brought you. It is this, this horrible, twisted version of the gospel. And he says what should happen to them if they continue in their ways and is that they should be cursed. 
and this very strong language that he's using. So he makes this incredible stance on salvation issues and on sin issues. What do I mean by sin? Crystal clear issues that God has called sin. And, and we have to deal with that as a church sometimes. That We want everyone to feel welcome. We're praying that God works in their lives. But you're welcome at whatever point you come in here, wherever your life is. We hope you feel welcomed here. But for example, if someone says, hey, now I want to be in leadership at, at, at Lifestone Church. I want, to, I want to help, you know, lead people. And then there are some requirements that we go, okay, well, is there any, you know, issue in your life that is, you know, it's so clear in Scripture. One that comes up a lot is, is okay, um, I'm living with my boyfriend or girlfriend. We're cohabitating. It's like, oh, and there's always good excuses behind that, right? Always really good excuses. We're saving up for that wonderful wedding, and that having that amazing wedding is going to make our marriage better somehow. And, uh, you know, money and finances and housing and whatever, and we're like, man, I just I go through this book, and there's just no exceptions. There's no like, oh, yeah, okay, your example. Oh, yeah, there's an there's a escape clause here for you because you want a nice wedding. Yeah, that's, I forget that verse, but it's in there. You know, and so when it's crystal clear and black and white in Scripture and people are saying, I'm a Jesus follower, in a loving way, we want to help you actually follow Jesus. If you're saying, I'm a Jesus follower and waving that banner, but there's areas that are so clear that you're not, there's, there has to be a stance that we make. Last week we talked about uh, in, in a, that you do that on Facebook is how you address that issue. No, that's not how you do it. You do it privately <laughs> if there's someone in your life that you're dealing with and you lovingly feel like you should address this with them. You do it privately uh, with them and you do it um, with discretion. And then there's a process in Matthew that, that, that kind of goes on from that point. So um, number three, some things are better left unsaid. We'll get through these last points quickly. Some things are better left unsaid. If God in all of his wisdom, in all of his knowledge, and, and the incredible, you want to talk about something miraculous that God has done? Do a little research on how God has preserved his word. It is amazing. Nothing, nothing that we have in, in human history has been preserved the way God's word is. So the way he's given us his revelation and his word that we call the Bible now, in all of his wisdom, if he is kept silent on certain issues, don't you think it's okay for us to keep silent on certain disputable issues, as Romans 14 calls them? So sometimes that's better. As you read through Proverbs this week, well, uh, life groups are also going to just look a lot, a lot of Proverbs just about wisdom of how relationships have more unity. And, and that's all, uh, many of the verses in Proverbs will just say it's much wiser to, to hold your tongue uh, than, than blab out what your, your convictions uh, that aren't clear in Scripture. Romans 14, 22 through 23, you may believe that nothing's wrong with what you were doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. And so, he's, hey, if you have this conviction and you know other people feel something different on disputable matters, Keep it between you and God. 
And, and when do you have to go out of your way to be sensitive to, to issues that people might take offense at? When they're around. When they're going to be a part of what you're doing. Not all the time. What we've had a lot of legalism in Christianity is like, okay, no cards. No one can play with cards in the church because there might be somebody at some point who continues to play with cards and, and then they, they, they might fall into a, a, uh, a gambling addiction. And so let's just never play cards. And so we've done that. We add these extra fences as though God needs our help. And what we do is restrict our freedom. And our, our freedom in Christ is, is only theoretical. It's not actually practical. But if you're with someone and they have this horrible gambling addiction, don't like somehow egg that on when you're with them, right? It's real practical. Number four, the greater our differences, the greater God's glory. There is something so unique about God's family that the outside world will, will often make this observance, and I've made it myself, and I kind of laugh and chuckle, that when you take a bunch of God's people, so often you will find people that seem to have nothing in common. Like, these people don't fit together. When you do a little sociology and go look at the rest of the world, when you see people grouped together, it's usually for a reason, right? There's some club, there's some gathering, there's some school, there's some uh, something, their nationality, their background, their work, something. And, and the Christian community, we have this incredible thing to put people together where it's like, man, there's just, that, those couldn't be two more different people. That's why I love opportunities I've had to sit and like be in a worship service with people from the other side of the globe who don't speak my language, who know nothing about my culture, who, but, but we'll be singing about Jesus. And man, there's more unity than I could have with, you know, someone who, who is a Husker fan, born in Nebraska, blah, blah, whatever I am, Okay. And, um, and we see that, and the outside world sees that. And the Bible addresses this and says, man, the world is going, what unifies them? Because they, I think they long for that, and they see something bigger and greater. And so when they see us and our differences, it actually brings God more glory. Uh, Romans fifteen five through 7 says, May God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory. The early church, there were people gathered. They were poor, educated, rich, uneducated, Jew, Gentile, Greek, slave, master. I mean, it was just this incredible diversity that just blew the culture's mind. Like, what is the deal? And, and that's something we should have. Not let ourselves be divided by our own little, little not, you know, disputable issues. Because uh, John 13, 35, I referenced this idea, but I thought, well, let me give you the address. John 13, 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And the last thing, number five, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And I'm going to ask the band to come on up as we, as we wrap up. But God uses messed up people like me 
and like you to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And I've yet to figure that one out. But I think it's just part of showing people that it's really God doing the work. And God will use people with different backgrounds and, and who have, who have uh, even backgrounds that are, that are, I mean, some people say, whoa, that's that background. That's got to disqualify you from being got, used by God. Nope, the Bible's full of those kind of people, especially. And so God just chooses to use those type of people. And I mentioned that at the end, so our perspective is clear. That if God has that kind of view towards people that in our natural sense, we would say, hey, you're disqualified to be used by God. How much more should we just view other believers and just have a heart for other believers and have hope in, in how God is working in those people's lives? And, and our perspective should go back to Romans 3, 21 through 24. And if you, I've said this before, I know, because we are getting towards the end of Romans, okay? Um, in November, we will not be preaching in Romans, all right? Um, <clears throat> but as we end here, I always say, ah, Romans chapter 3, uh, really in the 20s. Think of the 20s, 320. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone is sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of sin. And so what we have here is a beautiful picture of who every person who said yes to Jesus is. And with that comes incredible humility that what do we truly deserve we're not given. And so with that humility should come an incredible acceptance of every, every person who's said yes to Jesus. 